thank you. So in the next 15 minutes or so, I'm going to uh, present some of the main findings from the MAP Research Network. MAP stands for Multidisciplinary Approach to the Study of Chronic Pelvic Pain, and this is a multi-institutional collaborative research network funded by the NIDDK. And we're dedicated to studying interstitial cystitis, bladder pain syndrome, and chronic prostatitis, chronic pelvic pain syndrome, which we've uh, coined the term urologic pelvic pain syndrome to encompass both of those. The network consists of six recruitment discovery sites, and importantly, these include uro urologic expertise as well as non-urology pain experts. We also have three specialized discovery sites, a tissue core, a data coordinating core, and of course the NIDDK. We've conducted two cohort studies. Uh, the first uh, we called the epidemiology and phenotyping study. We recruited over 400 UCPPS participants and we followed them for a year and they completed questionnaires every two weeks for the entire year. And they also came into clinic at three different times during that time period for a more in-depth assessment. <clears throat> we had another a control group of asymptomatic individuals and then a third group with other non-urologic chronic pain conditions as a comparison. And there's a second cohort study that is ongoing. Uh, this is a longer study. We're following these subjects for three years. We've recruited over 600 individuals into that, and the baseline uh, recruitment is completed, so now we're in the follow-up phase. You'll see some of the techniques I'll talk about, such as neuroimaging and pain testing. Those were conducted just once at baseline in MAP1, but in MAP2 we have longitudinal uh, assessments of those. So what have we found? Well, the first important message is that pain and urinary symptoms are different. They track differently. Patients experience those differently. So in other words, we feel that there's two phenotypes, a pain phenotype and a urinary phenotype. And this means when we're assessing outcomes, we likely should really look at those two separately and have dual endpoints. So for example, here, um, we've developed a very novel uh, functional clustering methodology to really uh, separate groups into those who improve or get worse over time. And you'll see on the left, that's pain, and on the right are urinary symptoms. And those who improved in pain are not the same group who improved in urinary symptoms. But when we've looked over time to see how these trajectories track and what predicts them, we found that the presence of widespread pain is a bad prognostic factor, as well as the more uh, focused bladder pain is also a bad prognostic factor. And so we've followed up on those with studies in MAP2 that I'll talk about in a minute. Neuroimaging studies have shown not only altered function, but also altered structure in the brains of individuals with UCPPS compared to controls. And we've also seen unique findings that correlate with widespread pain versus just pain confined to the pelvis. And so this is really unique. It's an objective finding in a, something that's typically been a symptomatic syndrome. And it shows that UCPPS dysfunction is not confined to the pelvis. Of course, the next step is can this maybe predict treatment response or disease course? You know, time will tell. We've also done experimental pain testing, which does not involve a hammer. Uh, it involves a device that puts a gentle pressure on the thumb bed and gradually increases. And eventually, the patient says, well, it's starting to hurt. And eventually, they say, OK, that's enough. And you can generate curves about the degree of sensitivity. 
And we found that our patients with pelvic pain as a population have much more sensitivity than controls. And there, of course, is a gradation in that. But it certainly suggests that, you know, some patients have more of a centralized abnormality of pain processing. You can see it with auditory and visual stimuli as well. And so that makes sense that maybe a more centralized therapy in these patients would be more effective. Again, time will tell. We conducted site-specific studies, and one of the most exciting was at Iowa, which demonstrated increased in, an increased inflammatory response in women with IC compared to controls, and this was mediated through toll-like receptors 2 and 4, and there was a dose response, and so the increased inflammatory response was associated with worse symptoms at baseline, a worse trajectory over time, and more widespread pain. And so in MAP2, we've extended these studies through the entire network, just, just not at Iowa, and we've added men as well. And we're getting the preliminary data, and it's looking really good. And so we're optimistic that this likely will be replicated in the bigger sample and can be investigated farther. So MAP2, as I mentioned, we now have a three-year cohort study. And one thing I want to talk about in a minute is at the beginning here, we're doing a run-in period. And so we're assessing the patients repeatedly five times over a week to see if certain features, how stable they are. Uh, and I'll show some data uh, in a, just a second about that. So this is the cohort. We've recruited, again, almost 600 uh, people. You can see they range in age from 18 to 78. And their symptom duration ranges from zero, uh, less, than, less than a year, to 59 years. So a broad range in both. One of the first things we focused on was the concept of bladder-specific symptoms. And the, the question that seems to work best is pain with bladder filling. And so we asked that repeatedly five times during the run-in. And those who said yes at least three times, we said, okay, that's a, a bladder, a painful bladder filling phenotype. And then you can see we then had the clinical diagnoses. All the women, of course, had IC. Some of the men had IC. Some had prostatitis. And you can see 40% of the men with a clinical diagnosis of chronic prostatitis had this painful bladder filling. It suggests that bladder symptoms may be a little more common in men than we thought. And then we could see that those with a painful bladder filling had more severe urologic symptoms, more severe depression and anxiety, and a much higher rate of non-urologic pain syndromes, suggesting that this painful bladder filling and bladder symptoms, uh, bladder phenotype as a marker which can distinguish a subgroup within our patients regardless of their clinical diagnosis. We're also spending a lot of time looking at widespread pain using body maps. So this is from map one. We had a body map that was administered once at the beginning. There were 45 sites and we separated those into seven regions. You can see the white region in the middle, that's pelvic pain. And then the other colored regions are various other regions in the body. And if someone if, had at least three of those regions outside the pelvis, that was labeled widespread pain. When MAP2, we made things a little more complicated. So we have a more complex body map that differentiates lower versus upper abdomen, et cetera. We repeated that five times at the beginning. And we also had them check how severe the pain was with that scale on the left. So it's complicated, and, and how do we try to sort through this? So this is a propensity scoring measure. So let's just say we're going to define widespread pain as three sites or more throughout the body. You can see during the run-in period, some people had widespread pain every single time. So their score would be one. That's on the bottom. That's about half the sample. And then some others never had widespread pain at all during that five times. So their score would be zero at the top, and that was about 9%. And you can see we have then a distribution 
So we can plot this on the x-axis, that's the degree of widespread pain, and on the y-axis, the severity of their urologic symptoms. So this is interesting because you wouldn't necessarily expect the widespread pain to correlate with how bad their bladder pain is, for instance. And in fact, when we just look at a body map without severity, we don't see any correlation. They're not related. But what if we add in severity? So if we turn the dial up and say you have to have a pain of at least four or at least seven to qualify. And there, when we do that, we see that in this case, then, the degree of widespreadness as defined this way, incorporating severity, does correlate with more severe urologic pain symptoms. So the conclusion is it seems to be that it's important to account for the severity of pain when we're looking at body maps. We've also incorporated a um, study we call ATLAS, the Analysis of Therapies During the Longitudinal Assessment of Symptoms. And this may be the most important part of the entire study. So what we're doing is during the three-year period, we're asking the patients to contact us when their clinician changes their treatment. So when they're prescribed physical therapy, when they're prescribed a new med, when they're scheduled for assistohydrodistension, distension, et cetera. And then we have them come in to see us and do these tests, the neuroimaging, the pain testing, biomarker collection, questionnaires, before they start the therapy. Then we follow them for three months, collect clinical data, and then we repeat all that at the end. That's called an ATLAS module. And we're hoping that we'll be able to select, detect a signal that certain characteristics appear to predict treatment response. And if we find that, then that will set us up to be a good place to consider a focused clinical trial down the road at some point. Two final points about this. We developed a standardized physical exam so we can really focus on the severity and extent of pelvic floor muscle tenderness and how that factors into the disease course. And we also are collecting, we know about 8% of our patients have Hunter's lesions. For those who have had cystohydrodistensions, we know their anesthetic bladder capacity. And so this is information that we can incorporate and look to see uh, how it factors into things. And then we're very excited about doing cross-modal analyses. So what is that? Well, so I mentioned neuroimaging and pain testing. Turns out that, and the biomarkers as well, all of that took quite some time to get standardized and up and running. And so as a result, we only had 35 instances in MAP1 where we had a participant who had their clinical data, biomarker collection, neuroimaging, and pain testing all at that same time. It's not a lot. But because we then got our act together, if you will, now in MAP2, we have now almost 700 instances where we have all that data together. And so it really allows us to look much more thoughtfully at how these various things correlate with each other and hopefully provide much more insightful analyses. So where we're moving is more of an individualized treatment for UCPPS. So the hope is that we can identify various factors such as those I list here that we think are important, that we know correlate with you know, treatment trajectory or quality of life, et cetera, and then apply specific therapies to them that are individualized so that we ultimately can have better outcomes for our patients. And for those who uh, are interested in learning more, this is a recent review article that's been published in Nature Reviews Urology about the MAP1 findings, and I encourage you to look it up. Thank you for your attention.